Numbers chapter 7 for our study this morning. Numbers chapter 7. Now before we get there, let me ask a question. Bible trivia question for you. Who can tell me what is the longest chapter in the Bible? Who knows? Raise your hand. Right. Psalm 119. Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It has a sum total of 176 verses in it. They all deal with a singular, pervasive, all-important theme, the Word of God. Let me read to you a few verses out of Psalm 119. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 65. Psalm 119, 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. I like that verse. Let me read that again. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. When Cheryl and I were first married, and I'm sure I've shared this with you prior, but when we were first married, Pillsbury came out with what I to this day believe was the greatest dessert ever made. Pillsbury's Best Apple Danishes. You can't find them in the stores anymore. Several years ago they went off the market. But I could down these things. Oh, they were wonderful. They were these little danishes. You'd roll them out like you would the normal Pillsbury dough. Six in a pan. And then you'd pour on this apple compote on top of it. And pop them into the microwave for a couple of minutes. Or into the oven if you were a connoisseur as I was. Pull them out of the oven and they were steaming hot. And then you'd pour that icing. You know the icing that that Pillsbury makes? A little white icing that you could just drink by the gallons. I mean this stuff is so good. It's sweet. It's delicious. And you pour this on the top. And then if that's not enough, you slather butter on top of that. And it all drenches down in there and soaks into the apple danishes. And we would always pull those out of the oven and Cheryl would get her one. I'd take one and put it on a plate for her and then I'd take the pan of all the the other five and eat them myself. I kid you not, I could eat all of them just in one sitting. I couldn't even come close to doing that today. I started thinking about them and my arteries harden as I'm thinking. But my heart, in those days, and I, I wish I could have seen it then as well as I understand it now, but though I was eating them and they were delicious and they were wonderful, they were doing nothing but covering my heart in fat. Just surrounding my heart. I think there are fat molecules around my heart today from those Pillsbury Danishes. You know, the Danishes going down the feeding tubes, coming on down into your stomach, and all the fat molecules in the body are rushing to the heart. Surround it, man. Here comes the Danish. I believe to this day that I've got that on my heart. But let me ask you a question. There's a reason I mentioned these these sweet, wonderful things. You know, if all I did was eat those all day long, just stuff my face with those wonderful Pillsbury apple danishes, ultimately I would become lethargic, I would become sick, I would become useless, weighted down. I would have fat all around my heart and my internal organs. Let me ask you this though. Can you get fat on the Word of God? Can you feed too much on the Bible? If I spend too much time in the Word of God, is there a danger of becoming spiritually lethargic, weighted down? 
And when we read passages like Psalm 119, you may wonder why so many verses on one topic. 176 verses all talking about one thing over and over and over, the Word of God. It seems almost redundant or excessive or even unnecessary. It's like, I understand, Lord, I get it. Your Word's important. Okay, all you have to do is tell me once. But gang, listen. If we truly understood Psalm 119, it would change everything. Everything. Our behavior would change. Our thoughts would change. Our prayer life. Our schedules would change. You know what's interesting to me? Why is it that attendance on a Wednesday night, if if we really believed and bought into and understood the power of the Word of God, I guarantee you attendance on Wednesday night in our Through the Bible study would be greater than it is on Sunday morning. Because that's when we really dig in. That's when we go word for word, verse for verse. And if we understood Psalm 119, if we really did get it, we would be there and, and see the Lord is saying you don't get it. That's why I say it over and over and over. James puts it this way. He says, prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. And so 176 verses in this longest chapter, all devoted to the word. Because gang, often what seems superfluous to man is significant to God. What might seem excessive to us is essential to the Lord. Now I'm telling you this this morning because we're going to study the second longest chapter in the Bible, Numbers chapter 7. The second longest chapter. Now it's the first longest chapter, which all it talks about is the Word, is so significant, so important. You might be interested to discover that the second longest chapter also comes down to one thing. One thing. Now Rick, why are you talking about redundance? Because the second longest chapter is also, a, from a human perspective, redundant chapter. Over and over, the same thing is talked about again and again for 89 verses. Numbers chapter 7 is an 89 verse inventory. It's inventorying all of the giving of the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. It takes 12 days. In this chapter, we cover a span of 12 days of gifts and offerings that are tallied from the leaders of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. The Lord thoroughly, meticulously will record them all. So think about this. The longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. Focusing on one thing. What is that again? Right, the Word. The Word. But the second longest chapter also comes down to one thing. Giving. And I do not believe this is coincidental. James chapter 1 verse 22. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Gang, I want to be a doer of the word. This is a great connection between the longest and the second longest chapters in the Bible. Listen to this. Understand this. There is a difference between the hearer of the word, that person who just comes in and sits down and they hear it and it makes no difference for them, and a doer of the word. James says, be a doer. Don't just take it in. Like those Pillsbury apple danishes. Don't just take them in. Man, be a doer. 
And I believe, by the way, the more you take in the Word, the more you are a doer of the Word. You cannot take in too much of God's Word. For the more I find that I study, the more I am into the Word, the more I am out doing the Word, I want to be a doer of the Word. And listen, don't miss this. One of the greatest indicators of whether or not I'm a doer of the Word is what I do with what I have. It's how I give. Father, I pray this morning as we study this together that you will show us your heart. Father, there's an awful lot of baggage that goes into any discussion we have about giving or tithing or spending our money or dealing with our finances. Father, all of these things, we have all come out of different situations where money is our baggage. Where, Father, churches that we've been at that demand or require or control regarding our money. And so, for many here this morning, the the idea of the tithe is just, it's bothersome, it's frustrating, it produces guilt. Oh, Father, show us your heart. Help us to see your heart. To know where you're coming from. To understand, Lord Jesus, how you love us. Father, show us your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Now back to Numbers chapter 7. While you're turning there, I want to read a blessing to you. Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 24. A blessing from the Lord. Not, Not a prayer. Not something to pray asking God for blessing. No, this is a blessing that is absolutely guaranteed by the Lord for His people. He says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. The Lord wants to bless you. The Lord wants to give to you. The Lord wants to be gracious to you, to make His face shine on you, to lift up His countenance, to smile at you. This is what the Lord wants for you. This is at the heart of God, to bless you. Understand that. Keep that in mind as we get on into Numbers chapter 7 this morning. Number 7, verse 1. Now on the day that Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle... He anointed it and consecrated it with all its furnishings and the altar and all its utensils. He anointed them and consecrated them also. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their father's households, made an offering. They were the leaders of the tribes. They were the ones who were over the numbered men. When they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts and twelve oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders, and an ox for each one, then they presented them before the Lord. Now back in Numbers chapter 1, we looked at these twelve leaders. We've talked about these twelve leaders. In fact, we took a couple of Sundays to consider leadership, looking at these twelve men who were named. We understood back in that study that they are the men who shall stand with you. Men who shall stand with you, who will be a part of you, a picture of leadership. We talked about the fact that they are the called of the congregation, that they are called out for a role of shepherding and leadership. And we talked about the fact that a true leader is someone that you can count on, literally head by head. I don't know if you remember this, and if you weren't here, let me just uh, illuminate this for you. In Numbers chapter 2, they're told over and over, count these men are in Numbers chapter 1, is it? Let me look. 
Numbers chapter 1, again and again, four different times, the men are told to be counted head by head. And the word head by head in the Hebrew is Golgoleth, where we get the word Golgotha, of the skull. Count these men by the skull. Doesn't mean that you poke them every time you count someone to be a leader. It means you count men who are standing at the foot of the cross. You count as leaders those who are willing to be at Golgotha. Who are willing to crucify their desires, their wants, their needs for the better good of the fellowship, or in Israel's case, of the people of Israel. Now again today, we're going to see these 12 leaders, and we're going to watch them lead out in Christian faith. For gang, if you want to do more than just live for Christ, if you want to lead for Christ as well, listen, one of the clearest measures of your spiritual maturity is how you give. It's in your giving. It shows, it reveals to anyone who's paying attention where you are with the Lord spiritually. And again, this comes, some of you know this, this comes from a man who did not give it all to church for 35 years. Because I thought it was unnecessary. I figured other people who had the money would do it because they could do it. I couldn't. I was struggling. I was married with kids and and a family and, and a mortgage and car payments and all the rest. I couldn't do it. It was for someone else. And if someone had told me at that time in my life the true spiritual maturity is bound up and seen in your giving, I would have gone, whatever. I'm spiritually mature. And I'll be the first to tell you so. I want to give you some giving principles this morning as we look through this chapter. And the first principle is very simply this. Great giving is a maturity principle. Great giving is a maturity principle. Jim Elliott, the great missionary, young missionary, who was killed by the Alka Indians, what is it, 40 40 or 50 years ago now, this quote, famous quote, you've probably heard it before, Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's spiritual maturity. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And Jesus talks about this. If you're turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Understanding as you turn there that God is never concerned about your money, about getting your money for himself. What in the world does God need money for? He's the creator. And yet, Jesus puts a very fine point on this truth that great giving is a maturity principle. Luke 16, verse 10. Jesus says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of what he calls unrighteous wealth, the word is mammonas, mammon, it just means money, which doesn't really have a righteous or an unrighteous component, it's just money, it's just, it is what it is. If you have been, if you have not been faithful in the use of your money, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, Who will give you what is your own? Verse 13, he says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Harlan talked this morning at communion about devotion, about that overwhelming passion. I want God to be everything. My magnificent obsession. And Jesus said, You cannot be obsessed with the Lord and concerned and obsessed with money. You can't do it. You can't serve both. 
if you want to love the Lord with that kind of a passion, he says you cannot serve God and wealth. My friends, the principle is huge. Jesus says the ones who are faithful in unrighteous wealth are the ones who will be entrusted with greater riches. These are the doers of the word, not just the hearers. Your money and how you spend and what you do with it and how you give and how you support and all this stuff does come down to a very basic principle where Jesus says if you can handle this, you can handle this little giving principle, I'm going to give you more. In fact, the indication of Scripture, as we're going to see, is I'm going to give you more so you can give more. And the more you give, the more I'm going to give you so you can give more. And around it goes. This is the heart of the Lord who, as we read before, wants to bless you and keep you. And number seven caught my attention because it reminds us that anything we give in the name of the Lord, as you'll see, anything we give in the name of Jesus to the Father is recorded. Did you know that? That the Father keeps meticulous records and tracks everything we give to Him? Oh, Rick, you're approaching legalism here. No, I'm just saying God knows what's up. He has a handle on what's coming in and what's going out. He knows. He knows. And we see this great record again in Numbers chapter 7. Everything that's given is remembered by the Lord and the Father tells us results in greater kingdom riches because great leaders are great givers. You can take this to the bank in God's economy. The more you give, the more you will be given. And this is what the Bible tells us, 2 Corinthians 9.10. Paul writes, He who supplied seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything. Why, Paul? For all liberality. We're not talking about politics here. I don't care if you're conservative or a liberal in the political scene. Liberality is what God calls us to as Christians. To be liberal in all things that we're given. To give and give and not worry about it. He says you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Again, the more I give, the more I'm given, so I can give all the more. That's how God's economy works. That's how He sees things. And the tally of the gifts of Israel's leaders, again, is meticulously tracked. Line by line, it is apparently very important to God that we at the British Christian Fellowship here in 2006 have this chapter, look at it, and consider what these 12 leaders of these 12 tribes gave. For not a thing is missed of everything that they brought to the Lord at Mount Sinai. Gang, he tracks every little good thing you do. Why does God track what people give? Why would he do that? Listen, because it's in the Father's heart to reward you. God wants to reward you. We may say, oh, no, 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 you don't need to do that, Lord. No, no, you know, that, in that kind of little humility act that we like to play as Christians. He says, no, I want to reward you. And it's not a bad thing when I reward you. It's a good thing. Isaiah 62, verse 11, the Lord says, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And Jesus at the end of Revelation 22, verse 12, says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. A verse that when people connected to judgment can be frightening. To render to every man according to what he's done? Oh, I hope I've had a good week when he shows up. But it's not about judgment. As a matter of fact, when Jesus said that, it has nothing to do with judgment. It's about reward. 
My reward is with me. Now, don't get me wrong, there is judgment. There is judgment for those outside of Christ. Because as we've said before, for those in Christ, judgment has already happened. It's called Calvary. It's called the cross. Your judgment was, was paid there. It was handed down. And it was paid for by Jesus. There is no judgment, gang. For those who are in Christ, there is only reward. And I believe fully that there are different kinds of rewards, depending on how you've lived your life. But Jesus wants to reward you. So you're saying, wait a minute, the more I give, the more I'll get? Exactly. But this is not a statement, again, of salvation, gang. It's a principle of responsibility. The more responsible I am to give the Lord what belongs to the Lord in the first place, the more the Lord will recompense that giving in this life, but more importantly, in the kingdom to come. Now you may say, well, if this is the case, then why do some generous givers seem to get a whole lot more stuff than I do? I give generously, I do my part, and yet I see someone else with a nicer house. I see someone else with a better car. I see someone else with better stuff. Than, so how does that work? I thought you said, Rick, if I give more, God will give more to me, and then I have more to give, and blah, 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 blah. It doesn't seem to work that way. Well, read on. Numbers chapter 7, verse 4. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Accept these things from them, that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting. Okay, so right there we see what the purpose is of the giving, that they may be used in the service of the Lord, in the service of the tabernacle. And he says, And you shall give them to the Levites, to each man, you might underline this if you're an underliner, according to his service. According to his service. The Lord goes on and says, or the Bible tells us, Moses took the carts and the oxen and he gave them to the Levites. Watch this. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service. That would be one-third. So there were six carts and twelve oxen given. So a third of it went to the sons of Gershon for their service. And four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari. That's two-thirds according to their service under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the high priest. And in verse 9, But he did not give any to the sons of Kohath, because theirs was the service of the holy objects which they carried on their shoulder. And you can stop right there and go, That doesn't sound quite fair to me. We studied recently there are three divisions in the priestly tribe of Levi. Gershon, Merari, and Kohath are the three different families. And each of these three divisions had three different roles in serving the tabernacle and the things of the Lord. One-third of the carts and oxen go to Gershon and his family. Two-thirds go to the sons of Merari and the Kohathites get zip. Why is that? Principle number two. Great giving is biblically practical. It's biblically practical. Those who lead get what they need. Those who lead get what they need. What were the Kohathites responsible for? Numbers 4.15 tells us the Kohathites were the furniture movers. That was their job. They waited, and when it was time to move, Aaron and the the high priest and his sons would go in and they would cover all the the holy things, the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the lampstand, those things, the the altar of incense. They'd cover them up with special coverings. And then, once covered, in would come the Kohathites with their poles. They would put the poles through the little handles there, lift them up, and they would carry them. The Kohathites had no need of oxen, no need of carts. They didn't need that. The gifts were given to all the Levites, but the Kohathites did not need what was given. They were furniture movers, and they were required to carry these things on their shoulders. Well, you may wonder sometimes why some people seem to be blessed with more carts and oxen 
Nicer homes, bigger cars, larger bank accounts. But what are carts and oxen for? Think about this. They're for carrying things. They're for carrying things. The more carts and the more oxen you have, guess what? The heavier your load. And this is a great principle. If your load is light, if your possessions are few, God may be blessing you in ways that you can't see. I can never afford to put a down payment on a house, so I don't own a house. And a homeowner would tell you, that's not a bad thing necessarily. Because you're not strapped to that big building. You don't have to be making that mortgage every month. Well, I drive an old beater of a car. Yeah, do you have a car payment? Well, no. I mean, every time I have to take it in to get it fixed, there's a car payment, really. But no, I don't make a monthly car payment. So we're looking at people and we see this fantastic nice car someone drives, but they're paying for the teeth for it. It's a weight. It's a load. Carts and oxen, therefore, carrying things. For the more you have, the more you have to carry. Paul put it this way, though, and I love this verse, Philippians 4.12. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And Paul is saying it's not just being in great want in which I, I feel the comfort and strength of the Lord. It's when I have a lot of stuff, too. It's when I've got all kinds of blessings, blessings out of my ears. I still know how to be content. Because that stuff is just stuff. It's not going to weigh me down. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So if you don't have much in the way of carts, if you drive an old beater, a 1979 ox cart, you know, that's what you're riding in church in. Consider yourself blessed because different people have different burdens and different loads based on the ministry God wants us to do in and among each other. Acts chapter 10 verse 34, Peter says God is not one to show partiality. He gives each one of us what we need. He provides the means to carry the load. And the Kohathites didn't have any need to have stuff up on ox carts, so they got no ox, they got no carts. Now pay close attention to the tally of the rest of the gifts. It's interesting. Verse 10, going on. The leaders offered the dedication offering for the altar when it was anointed. So the leaders offered their offering before the altar. Verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, Let them present their offering one leader each day for the dedication of the altar. Now, the one who presented his offering on the first day was Nachshon, the son of Aminadab of the tribe of Judah. Okay, this is day one. Here comes Nachshon. He's got his offering. His offering was one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels. One silver bowl of 70 shekels. According to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering. One gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense. One bull, one ram, one male lamb one year old for a burnt offering, and one male goat for a sin offering. And for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. And this is the offering of Nachshon, the son of Aminadab, and a partridge and a pear tree. It's all listed out very clearly what is given here by this guy. But read on. On the second day, Nethanel, the son of Zuar, leader of Issachar, presented an offering. And if you read verses 19, 20, 21, 22, and 23, his offering is exactly word for word the same as Nachshon's offering. Same exact thing. It's a little redundant. Same thing. Going on, verse 24. On the third day, it was Eliab, the son of Helon, the leader of the sons of Zebulun. And guys, going on from there, down to verse 29, same thing. Listed over one more time. The silver dish, and the silver bowl, and the gold pan, and the young bull, and all the way down. 
Verse 30. On the fourth day, it was Eliezer, the son of Shadur, leader of the sons of Reuben. And you read down through verse 35, same thing again. Exactly, precisely. Verse 36. On the fifth day, it was Shalumiel. And you're thinking, Rick, if you always did Bible study like this, we'd be done with the Bible in just a few months. <laughs> On the fifth day, it was Shalumiel, the son of Uri Shaddai, the leader of the children of Simeon. And guess what? His offering, exactly the same as the previous guys. On day 6, verse 42, it was Eliasaph, or Eliasaph, son of Deuel, leader of the sons of Gad. Read on down through verse 47, same exact thing. Verse 48, on the seventh day, it was Elishama, son of Amihud, leader of the sons of Ephraim. On down through verse 53, same thing again. Exactly, precisely, you can lean up or line up these verses together and they're all the same. Verse 54, on the eighth day, it was Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur, leader of the sons of Manasseh. His offering, exactly the same. Verse 60, you getting the point here? Verse 60, on the ninth day, it was Abidan, the son of Gideoni, leader of the sons of Benjamin. Abidan. First name Joe. It's Joe Abidan. No, just kidding. On down, you read through. The, the verses again are the same. Exactly the same thing. Straight through verse 66. On the tenth day, it was Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai, leader of the sons of Dan. That's day ten. His offering, same exact thing. All listed out, tallied, inventoried by the Lord for us to read. And verse 72, the eleventh day. On the eleventh day, it was Pagiel, the son of Akran, leader of the sons of Asher. Same exact offering. We get down to the twelfth day on verse, in verse 78. And it was Ahira, the son of Enon, leader of the sons of Naphtali. Reading through verse 83, same gift. So the twelve leaders of the twelve tribes come forward, give the exact same gift, and God spends verse after verse after verse after verse rewriting what has already been written. Verse 84. This was the dedication offering for the altar from the leaders of Israel when it was anointed. Twelve silver dishes, twelve silver bowls, twelve gold pans. Each silver dish weighing 130 shekels, each bowl 70. All the silver of the utensils was 24 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The twelve gold pans full of incense weighing 10 shekels apiece according to the shekel of the sanctuary. All the gold of the pans, 120 shekels. All the oxen for the burnt offering, 12 bulls. All the rams, 12. The male lambs, one year old, with their grain offering, 12. The male goats for sin offering, 12. And all the oxen for the sacrifice of the peace offering, 24 bulls. All the rams, 60. The male goats, 60. The male lambs, one year old, 60. This was the dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. Interesting. Now remember... What seems superfluous to man is often significant to God. What seems excessive to you and I is essential to the Lord. For in this full accounting of offerings of the twelve leaders of the twelve tribes, we see in every case the leaders gave exactly the same thing. Dish for dish, bowl for bowl, pan for pan, beast for beast, same thing all the way through the chapter, every tribe offering precisely the same gifts. And you're thinking, okay, what is precisely your point? In the church game, the concept of the tithe, which simply means 10%, is not only a maturity principle, it's not only biblically practical, number three, great giving is financially proportional. 
financially proportional. This, and please hear my heart on this. No, in fact, don't hear my heart. Hear God's heart on this. This is how things are supposed to go in God's economy. This is the way God in His wisdom would say it works best. It works best. It works well. Everyone gives proportionally exactly the same thing. From broker to blue collar worker, from college student to criminologist, it doesn't matter. Everybody gives the same. From health worker to homemaker, giving is to be proportional among God's people. How does this work then in the church today? It doesn't. It doesn't. Because you and I know this is not how it works when it comes to our giving. There are those who carry the church and then there are those who show up at the church. And I'm not asking and I don't know who is who here. I was just telling Sean and Marilee last night, it is such a blessing to be in a place and not have a clue what anybody gives. So you can relax because I'm not staring anybody down this morning. Again, our baggage of tithing, of this 10%ing, this legalistic approach that so many churches take, has really messed some people up and stolen from many the blessing of God. For again, you need to hear my heart on this again. The blessing of God, what He wants to give, it, it, it is so wonderfully bound up in this principle of 10% giving. And you're thinking, it's just not where I'm at, Rick. We just don't have it to give. And I would ask you this question, where did what you have come from in the first place? Where did you get what you have? Do you think you earned it? Do you think that you just worked hard enough so you got to the point where, man, I have earned my stuff. I have built up my savings. It's my hard work that has provided it. I'm telling you, gang, that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that it comes from the Lord. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights. It's God's graciousness. It's God's blessing. I have nothing except that which God wants me to have. So when it comes to giving, it's not mine anyway. It does not belong to me. I haven't earned it. I haven't tucked it away. God's economy. The Father put it this way. Malachi 3.10 Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven, and listen, pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. God wants to bless you. He wants to bless. And so he says, test me in this. By the way, there is no other verse in all of the Bible where God says, test me in this. Not a single one. You can't find it. In fact, in every other instance, we're told not to test the Lord, not to tempt the Lord. But in this one instance, God says, test me. Check it out. You see if I'm going to drop the ball. You see if, if I, the Creator, God over all, the Almighty, can't have it or doesn't have it in me to take care of your needs if you'll trust me in this way. Bring the tithe. Bring the tithe, the Lord says, and I will bring the blessing. Gang, He puts His word on the line here. Do you realize that's what God's doing? The second He said, test me in this, He is putting His own word on the line. Which means if I test Him in this and it all falls apart and I end up in the poorhouse, I can say, God doesn't keep His word. Does God keep His word? Psalm 138 verse 2 says, He has magnified His word above His name. So important is God's word that he brings to us. He even goes to the point that, you know, if I had written that down, I would say that's almost blasphemy. You've made your word more important than your name, but God is the one who did it. 
My word is more important than my name. In other words, you can count on me, and if I say something, I am going to do this. Now, there are people who look at the whole idea of tithing as restrictive. It's restrictive. The only thing not tithing restricts is the blessing which God would otherwise pour out. We limit ourselves when we don't trust the Lord. That's the restriction. It's interesting to me that those who do accept the Lord's test to tithe don't feel restricted. They don't feel restricted. I have to share this, keep this name anonymous. We'll call this person Zerubbabel just for fun. <laughs> Zerubbabel wasn't tithing for years and years and years of his life. And sat down literally about a year and a half ago, had a conversation with me about tithing. I just don't know if I can really trust, if I can really do this. And I said, well, Zeru, here's what you do. Give it a try. Give it a shot. God said test me in it, so test him. Take him in his word. See what happens. See if he will provide for you anyway. And I love talking to Zerubbabel. <laughs> because every time Zerubbabel, something happens that has to do with finances, Zerubbabel is provided for, and I, I'm telling you in the last year and a half, probably a dozen times where Zerubbabel has come knocking on my door or calling on the phone or beeping on my cell phone saying, you're not going to believe what God just did. This is so great. I couldn't have believed it before. But now that I've just started saying, okay, I'm just going to give 10% and see what happens, God blesses me. There have been numerous, I love this. You guys have to meet Zerubbabel. <laughs> Because he is totally hooked on this idea of tithing, of giving, of 10%ing. He's hooked. And it's a blast. And you know what? It's a blessing for me every time I hear from him. Because I'm watching this person walk out blessing. And Zerubbabel is not me, although I'll tell you, I have been incredibly blessed just by seeing what the Lord does. This is not legalism. It's not restriction. As a matter of fact, I've never met anybody who says 10% is too restrictive. I'm going to start giving 60. <laughs> but I'll tell you something. If you did, God would be ecstatic and would provide for you to cover the rest. I'm convinced of it. And we'll know in six months if the bridge closes down because we're all poor. But the truth is, and Zerubbabel is the example, the truth is, once a person begins tithing, it is not restricted, it's not a heavy weight, it becomes a joy. I didn't know this for so long. I wish I had known back when I first started making money. I wish I had known it then. I tell my kids that now. You give 10% of everything God gives you starting right now at this age, and as you grow up, watch and bless you. It's awesome. And the best part of it is every time money shows up from somewhere where you don't know where it came from when you need to pay a bill or whatever and it's just there, every time you go, that's the Lord. Praise God, it really is Him. It's not me. It has nothing to do with me. Now others may argue against tithing as being too legalistic. Churches have made it legalistic. Churches have made it a part of their membership. If you go to this church, you need to tithe. And if you tithe this 10% and anything beyond that is offerings and we separate out tithes and offerings. Had a great conversation about that. It's amazing what leaders will do to control the money in a church. I want to make sure you're giving your tithe. Don't do anything different with it. And if you're going to do something different, you better check with us because we're the ones in charge here. That's legalism, gang. And it is thick in the church, especially when it comes to money. But I have never heard anybody call tithing legalistic who was at that time tithing. Besides, gang, the biblical concept of the tithe is, the tithe is not legalistic. In fact, do you know that the tithe precedes the law? 
precedes the law. I'm not going to read this right now. You can go back and check it later. Genesis chapter 15 tells an interesting story about a king, a king by the name of Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem. It's a fantastic story because if you compare it with Hebrews chapter 7, we begin to find out this Melchizedek guy is actually not just a, a, a king, he prefigures Jesus. In fact, he not only prefigures Jesus, but personally I believe Melchizedek in the Old Testament, you can read the story, I believe he was Jesus. I believe it was a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. Because his name is so interesting. I'll read this from Hebrews for you. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 1 says, This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. In other words, Abraham tithed. This is before the Mosaic Law, which means tithing is not legalistic. It's not law conditioned. It was before the law, Abraham tied to this Melchizedek and blessed him. This Melchizedek, first of all, by translation of his name, was the king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. And also he was the king of Salem, which means peace. So this guy who shows up to Abraham is both king of righteousness and king of peace. Well, who's the king of righteousness? Jesus. Who's the king of peace? Jesus Christ. So I think it was Jesus that showed up there. It's also interesting that Abraham tied to this guy. Here comes this king Melchizedek out of nowhere and Abraham coming back from this battle sees him and says I give you 10% of everything. Tithing by the way is worship. It's worship. And that's what Abraham does. Tithing precedes the law. In this act of worship 10% of the choicest spoils Abraham gives to the Lord he gives it to Melchizedek. The principle of tithing is getting a biblical principle that precedes the law of Moses by nearly 800 years. So if you say it's legalistic, it's not. They came before. But listen, there are those who would say, yeah, but we're under the new law, the law of grace, which I would say all the more reason to tithe, not legalistically, but enthusiastically. To see what God will do. Tithing precedes the law. It also postdates the law. Jesus said in Matthew 23, I'll quickly read this to you. Matthew 23, verse 1, Jesus spoke to his to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, listen, therefore, don't miss this. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things, and they do not do them. And down in verse 23, Jesus is now into these woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Man, he has taken them apart. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe, mint and dill and and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. People read that and go, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, see? They tithe, but they neglected the more important things. I'm all about the more important things. That's what I'm about. I don't care about the tithing. That's, that's just money. It doesn't matter. I'm about the important things. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, here are the important things, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And then he says, these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. It's both. It's both. It's not just being about mercy and loving people and compassion and sharing the gospel and being out there doing justice and trying to make things right in the world. Man, Jesus is all about that and about the tithe. And just, it still, does it still sound a little uncomfortable to you? Listen, 
Matthew 23, 23 in the King James Version, which nails this more accurately, says, These things you ought to have done and not leave the other undone. Jesus, who is the law incarnate, says, Man, keep on doing the good things and keep on bringing the tithe. He says, But change your heart, Pharisees. Don't stop the good things you're doing. Just change your heart about the good things you're doing. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. Maybe for you, you've been in a place where tithing is really legalistic and so you say, I just don't want to do it. I think Jesus would say, hey, don't give up tithing. Just change your heart about it. Because I'll tell you one thing, if you're at the British Christian Fellowship, it's not something you're required to do here. That's up to you. Everything that I'm saying is up to you. It's between you and the Lord. It is not for the purpose of increasing giving here. I'll share something else with that in just a second. But here's how to focus on this, to think about this whole idea. 2 Corinthians 5.14 Christ's love compels us. I do what I do, not because I have to do it, but because I am compelled to do it. I love Jesus so much. I want so much. Again, as Harlan shared, I want, I want to have him be my absolute magnificent obsession. If that's the case, then give it to him. Let his love compel you. Number three, great giving is financially proportional, as we saw. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-2. Paul is talking about the collection for the saints. And he says in verse 2, On the first day of every, work, of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. Now listen to this. The word translated as he may prosper indicates giving as you have been given. In other words, proportionally. Proportionally. Give as you've been given. This probably speaks of the tithe, although I can't, I can't absolutely verify that. But Paul is saying, I'm going to come, there's going to be a collection. Give as you have been given. Well, how does that work? It means the college student that makes 100 bucks a week or 100 bucks a month, hardly anything, but tithes is giving, in my opinion, more than the person who makes $500,000 a year and doesn't give 10%. Proportional giving means if you're giving 10% of everything you have, it doesn't matter how much you have. And there are those of you who feel like, you know, I'm like a Republican in Washington State. My vote doesn't count for much. You know? (laughs) So do you stop voting? No way. I I just fill in that little piece a little darker than usual. so I'm just not going to give. Baloney! It's not about what the church takes in. Can we get that out of our brains? This whole message this morning is not about what goes in that little box in the back. This is about you and Jesus and having a wild, passionate, wonderful relationship, a, a run across the mountains with Him. A relationship built on trust and joy and passion and blessing that we've said and we've seen God wants to give you. Man, Jesus gets excited when people do this. Listen to this. Mark chapter 12, verse 42 tells us a poor widow came. Jesus and his apostles, they're sitting there. They're at the temple and this widow comes up and puts in two small copper coins. They're called mites, which, are amount, to, uh, which amount to a cent. Do you think those two cents that she dropped into the temple collection mattered to the temple that day? 
No. No, they didn't. People gave a whole lot more than that. In fact, Jesus is watching and he calls his disciples to them and he says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned and all she had to live on. And Jesus was excited by this. He was thrilled by this. Watching this one little out of all these givers and a lot of great giving was going on there. But this one little widow put in the last of her two cents and Jesus marveled at it. Oh, it was a mite small. <laughs> but it <laughs> But listen, it was completely out of proportion. She didn't give ten percent. She gave a hundred percent of what she had. Now let me ask you a question about this widow. Do you think that she went home that afternoon and in the following week and the week after that and the month that followed starved to death because she gave everything up? Or do you think God, who was sitting there with his disciples and saw this take place, do you think maybe God said, bless her, bless her? I think she was well taken care of. Because she trusted. And she would receive blessing. Great giving, gang, it always thrills the Lord. Do you want to thrill the Lord? Do you want to be in a relationship with God where you can actually do him and, and do something? And, and he goes, wow, that was great. Did you see what they just did? Did you see, see what she just, how she just acted? Did you see what she put in there? Hey, angels, come here. She just put in, she can't afford that. Someone bless her. Get down there right now. Do you want to thrill the Lord? Do you want to be a doer of the word? And not just a hearer? The word says, great giving begins, gang. It begins, great giving begins, God's word at 10% and blossoms upward from there. I know what some of you are saying, saying, Rick, you're putting numbers, you're placing too much emphasis on numbers. I didn't make up the word tithe. It wasn't my wisdom that came up with that. I'll tell you what's great about 10% is for someone with a mind like mine, it's really easy to figure out. <laughs> Interesting too, gang, that tithers, those who do determine to give 10%, also tend to be givers to other institutions, missions, charities, above and beyond their 10% that they give. Great givers tend to start there and just keep giving and giving and giving and it goes everywhere. Well, Rick, what about the whole idea? Should I do my entire 10% to the church and then other giving somewhere else or can I divide it up? I don't care. Talk to the Lord about that one. That's between you and Him. Well, should it be just 10%? What if I wanted to give 11? I'd say great. How about 9.5? I don't care. Talk to the Lord. Work it out with Him. Number four in your notes, if you're still taking notes, great giving is also divinely profitable. The last verse of the chapter says, When Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. So he spoke to him. Interesting, the very last verse would indicate God in the tabernacle speaking to Moses. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying that when faithful giving happens, God shows up. He shows up. He tallies all these things and goes, Generous people, generous people, I got a word for you. Why? Why does God show up when a lot of good giving is going on? Because, listen to this, because God knows great givers are also great receivers of His word. Great receivers. Wide receivers, you could say. Maybe be wide receivers of the blessings of God. I want to go along and have God chuck the bomb and I catch, Wow, touchdown, blessing! He takes such great care of us. I want you to close your Bibles and just listen for a second. We're almost done. 
I was going to teach this on Wednesday night of this last week. I wasn't going to teach it today. In fact, I finished this was the Wednesday night Bible study that you just had this morning. And we, I studied it through and had it all ready. It had up at the, my little title said Wednesday night. And then I went back through it as I often do. And I was just looking at it and kind of praying about it. How do you want me to say this, Lord? And, and is this, are we sticking close here to what, what you once said? And as I went through it, it became very clear to me that God didn't want this to come on a Wednesday night. He wanted it this morning. He wanted it this morning. Why bring it today? Why wait and share this study with everybody here in the fellowship this morning? Are we sliding in the budget? No. As a matter of fact, gang, ask any one of our elders. The Bridge Christian Fellowship, funky little church in the barn, has $80,000 in the bank right now. And it's not money, by the way, that's just sitting there. It's, it's designated to do things, and, and we're, we're looking ahead and saying, Lord, you know, are you, are you going to eventually bring property our way? We want to be ready for that. We want to be good stewards. But gang, the reason I tell you this, $80,000 is just sitting there right now. 15% of all tithes and offerings that come into the bridge are designated first to missions and giving. This fellowship, because of its generosity, is taking care of its own. There are some folks right now who will remain nameless, but who are being blessed by the generosity of this church, who are here at this church. God sees the widow putting the two cents in, and He says, take care of her. And so we intend to, we determine to, and we are. And by the way, I'll say one more thing. If you happen to be in that state where you're in serious financial crisis, you need to talk to myself or one of the elders because we have determined to take care of this body. That's the way it should be. That's what the church does. But listen, gang. I'm speaking to an incredibly generous church. But experience, not our giving records, but personal experience tells me that there are some here who give proportionally very little, if nothing at all. I know this. I just know it from ministry experience. That there are among us, and I'm not asking to stand up, and I'm not asking you to feel guilty or weird, but I know there are people sitting here this morning who have not given a thing in the last year. Why do you know that, Rick? Because it's human nature, gang. Because I didn't for 35 years of my life. I know this. And if you're sitting here this morning and you are feeling guilty, you've missed the point. You've missed it. You did not hear a word I said if you feel guilty this morning about giving. What is the point, Rick? The point is, gang, the Lord wants to bless you and keep you. The Lord wants to make His face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord wants to lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. That's the preamble to the chapter on giving. Before God lays out these 89 verses on giving, first He says, I want to bless you. I'm going to bless you. Now check it out. Here's a tally of the giving of the people of Israel. With God, He says, my blessing comes first. My intention for you. My heart towards you. Dang, He will provide for you. And again, if He's the one giving to you in the first place, and if He's the one tallying the giving after the fact, He knows better than you how to meet your needs. He knows. 
beyond the budget and the paperwork gang, God is looking for receivers. And that's what this message is about this morning. That's what this study is about. It's about receiving the blessings of God. And I'm just the messenger telling you that there is one way that you can guarantee it. There is one way that you can receive more than you have ever received before. And it's if you give. If you give. Just trust Him with it. The question is not, can I afford to tithe? The question is, will I accept God's blessings in full? And that's what I believe the Lord wants us to hear this morning. Let's pray. Father, it is my greatest desire that we would be a church of doers. I do not believe, Father, that anybody can sit around and give fat on the Word. I don't believe, Father, that your word makes us lethargic. I don't believe that your word slows us down. I believe, Father, that it whips us into shape and ignites us to ministry unlike anything else. I believe, Father, the success of your kingdom is bound to your word, as you even said. That your word does not come back empty. And so, Father, we read through this long chapter this morning. We lay it out before you. And I pray that you will teach us to be doers of the word and not just hearers. For the sake of each individual heart and not for the sake, Father, of the coffers here at the bridge. And Father, I even pray if there's someone struggling with that, that that you would put in their heart to give 10% to some missions organization that they know they can bless. If they're not comfortable doing it here, that's fine. Because God, I know you're going to take care of us. You always have. Miraculously and wonderfully. But Lord, we need to hear you in our hearts. And I want everybody to experience the blessing that you promised. I want to experience it myself. So Father, convict me. And may we learn to live in absolute trust. And maybe even thrill you from time to time with our little faith. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.